0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Quitting on time, so much feels like you're quitting too early that actually, we generally don't make the choice to quit until it's no longer a decision. We know all sorts of stories about people climbing Everest where they're continuing up, and despite the weather getting very bad, they don't actually turn around until it's quite dire. And you know, obviously, you should be turning around long before your life is in that much danger.
1: Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investing strategy, visit planefe.comslash her money to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey, everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. My favorite shows, and my favorite shows count, right? But my favorite shows that we do on this podcast are the kind that challenge the status quo, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're talking about quitting and what it means to be a quitter, because i got to say that word often gets a bad rap. We're told in school, in our jobs, in our relationships, that we should just stick things out when the going gets tough. We're told that winners never quit and quitters never win. But here's the thing, quitting can sometimes be the absolute best choice. We all should have the power and the confidence to leave a toxic job or a bad relationship that's no longer serving us. Annie Duke, my guest today, is an expert on quitting at the right time and in the right way. Annie is a former professional poker player. And for years, her job depended on knowing when to hold them and when to fold them and using that skill. She went on to become one of the world's greatest female professional poker players, amassing more than $4 million in total earnings. Since retiring from poker in 2012, she's become a top educator on decision-making, and her first book, Thinking in Bets, was a national bestseller. More recently, she's been on a mission to help more people embrace the beauty of quitting, and her latest book is called Quit. Quit. The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. I'm very excited for this conversation, especially, Annie, as it relates to the workplace and investing. Welcome. So glad to have you here.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation myself.
1: So let's just dive into it. Why does quitting have such a bad reputation and why is the reputation wrong?
0: You know, I I feel like it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg story as to why it has such a bad reputation. It could be because the way that we think about heroes is, you know, persevering through trials and tribulations. Even if we go back to like the Knights of the Round Table and so on and so forth, that this is kind of part of the human story. It's part of the human narrative. But we could actually take it in the other direction and say, look, there's a lot of cognitive biases, the way that our brains are wired, that really kind of pile up to make it very hard to stop. And because those biases are making it very hard to stop because we're biased against quitting, then as we create our narratives, in those narratives quitting becomes the villain, right? So I'm not sure which way it's going, but either way it's bad for us because quitting is an incredibly important skill. And I'll tell you why, because starting things is really hard. And the reason why starting things is really hard is because we have to start them under conditions of uncertainty. There's luck that's going to determine how it turns out. And then there's just a lot of stuff we don't know. I mean, think about it, like when you take a job, what do you really know about the company that you're taking a job with? You've had a few interviews. You've done a little bit of research, but you've never actually been in the role. You don't really know what the culture is like. And so it's hard to actually start things under those circumstances. And I think we've all had that feeling of, I wish I knew then what I know now. If I had known then what I know now, I would have made a different choice. And this is why quitting shouldn't be villainized. Why it's such an important skill. Because you know what? When you find that information out that tells you that you would have made a different choice in the first place, quitting is what allows you to go and get out of the thing that you've decided to start to go try something else. And we just need to start to understand that it's incredibly valuable that we get to react to new information that we have by walking away from things and stop treating walking away as if it makes you a loser.
1: You describe such a positive lens to put on quitting, and I appreciate that. I remember quitting a job three months after I took it. Good for you. Well, I was very young and maybe, you know, a little stupid, but I couldn't do it one more day. And a lot of people would look at that experience, a lot of people do look at that experience. And I've watched my own kids struggle with this and know there is this huge cultural stigma against quitting, that society really labels you, you know, It maybe it's a scarlet cue when you quit and you're scared to put it on your resume. Is that something that that you think is ever going to change?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think so for the reason that there are so many cognitive biases that really the result is that they bias us against quitting. I think that there are some cultures that have tried to sort of eat into that a little bit and make quitting seem more positive. If we think about the idea of minimum viable product, for example, that really has quitting built into it, right? Like let's do something small, push it out to the world. If it doesn't work, we can pull it back. Fail fast would be kind of building quitting into it. But first of all, I think that those only have some limited success. And second of all, the intention and the, the amount of effort that has to go into making people feel like it's okay to walk away from things is still really hard. And I think about Astro Teller, who's the CEO of X, which is Google's in-house innovation hub. And he told me that he works so hard, so hard to make quitting like a good thing to be celebrated. They're taking really big swings, right? These are moonshots that they're going for over at X. And so what that means, what goes along with big swings and moonshots is that a lot of them are gonna fail. Because you're trying things that have the most uncertainty ever. You're trying to do something that's world changing. And then, you know, when you figure out that it's not going to go the way you want, you need to abandon it and hopefully find that out as quickly as possible so you can move on to something that will actually make the world 10x better. And he said he works really hard in this very, very intentional way of building quitting into the decisions about when to start, making it culturally like okay to quit. When he's talking to people about shutting projects down, he'll have. Other people who have shut projects down and moved on to something else like in the room with him. And even so, he said, it's still so much resistance and still so, so, so hard to get people to walk away. So he feels like he's managed to make it better, but not by a ton. It's not like he's turned the whole thing around 180. You talked a little bit
1: about the cognitive research. And as I'm listening to you, I'm flashing on the concept of opportunity cost and sunk cost, really more sunk cost that I learned when I was an intro to economics student all those years ago. And this idea that we can put time and resources and sweat equity and care our, our own, you know, personal care a lot about a particular project into it and then walk away from it feels like a loss. And in investing, we hate losing, right? There's a whole phenomenon about the concept of loss aversion and how far we'll go to avoid a loss. Is that why our brains don't like to quit? Because it feels like a loss?
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. So, Let's dive into that. So first, let's just start with opportunity cost. Your instinct that opportunity cost is a part of this is absolutely right. That there are opportunity costs itself is not what stops us from quitting. Because obviously if we could recognize the fact that if we're doing something that isn't working out, that's time and attention and money and effort that we can't put into something that is. This is one of the reasons why actually, contrary to what our intuition is, quitting doesn't stop your progress. It actually speeds you up. Because if you're doing something that isn't working and you don't switch, it means that you can't switch all your time and attention to something that is working to other opportunities. So that's the opportunity cost of sticking with something that isn't working out. You can kind of think in the simplest sense, if I'm on a road where there was a road closure and I don't switch and exit that road to get on a different road, obviously that's slowing my progress down, right? So that's the opportunity cost problem where opportunity cost comes into stopping us from quitting is that there's something called opportunity cost neglect. And opportunity cost neglect is that we just really don't see, we don't take into account very well what the opportunity costs are. So it's a very important thing in terms of shifting your mindset around quitting is to start to explore what those other opportunities are that might actually be better than the thing you're doing. Now, what is part of the reason that we ignore opportunities? Well, that comes to sort of kind of at the core of it, two concepts that you touched on. One is sunk cost, the sunk cost fallacy. And the other is what we call sure loss aversion. So loss aversion is a problem with starting things. So when we're considering, say, two investments, we will have a preference for the one that has associated with it the lowest probability and the least sort of potential absolute loss that's associated with it independent of which one has the highest return on investment. So the idea is we could have two stocks. One of them is more volatile, right? So you have bigger wins associated with it, but also bigger losses associated with it, but the ROI is high. And then we could have another stock where you're not going to win too much, but you're also not going to lose too much. has a lower ROI, but we'll have a preference for that second stock, even though we won't make as much money from it. So that's loss aversion. So this is a very important concept from Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky, Daniel Kahneman. Actually, it's a big part of prospect theory, which is part of what won him the Nobel Prize in economic sciences. Okay, so we've got loss aversion. That's a problem with starting things. We don't like to start things where we could lose at them. But the question is, what happens once we've started it? So we've bought the stock, and now we've got the stock in our portfolio. That's the question. And this is where we get into something called shore loss aversion, which is related to sunk cost. And shore loss aversion is that we try to avoid turning a loss on paper into a realized loss. So you buy a stock at 50, it's trading at 40. We don't want to actually sell at that point because that means that we have to turn that loss on paper of $10 into a realized loss of $10 and we're averse to doing that. So that's shore loss aversion. That's a related concept to sunk cost So in this particular case, it overlaps, right? Because we have this feeling that if I sell, I can't get that money back. I'll have wasted the money I already put in, these kinds of things. Yes. Right. But sunk cost goes beyond just I put money into a stock. And it can be like, I took a job. And if now I leave, then I'll have wasted all the time I spent onboarding and all of the training and everything I've put into it. I'll have wasted my time. So you can see how those concepts are similar so how can we think about like how does sunk cost manifest itself and it's this feeling of waste which we think of as a retrospective problem i'll have wasted my time but waste is actually should be a forward-looking problem is it correct for me to continue to do this or will that be a waste of time going forward so i'll just do a thought experiment with, with you which i think will kind of help you understand, like, this quitting problem.
1: Okay. And we'll help everybody else understand it at the same
0: time. I hope so. So what's your favorite band? Oh, the Eagles. Okay. So let's imagine that the Eagles are doing an outdoor concert. And on the day of the outdoor concert, it's freak. Like, it's in June. But a freak event happens. And it's, like, 30 degrees and freezing cold rain. Ugh, okay. And a friend of yours says, hey, I have a free ticket. I know you love the Eagles. I have a free ticket. Do you want the ticket? Do you wanna go see the Eagles in the 30 degree weather in the freezing cold rain? Yeah, I'm not going. You're not going. Okay, but now let's imagine, right. Now (laughs) let me ask you a question. Let's say that you could buy a ticket on that day. I'm assuming you wouldn't go either because you wouldn't take the free ticket. So if you had to buy the ticket, you certainly wouldn't have gone. Correct. Okay. So, and that's a very clear choice for you. Like, obviously, you're not going. It's freezing cold. Now, let's imagine, though, that a week before the concert, you bought a ticket and you paid $500 for it. And on the day of, is that such an easy decision anymore, not to go?
1: No, it's not an easy decision. And I've had this experience of... Not spending the money, but spending the time. So when Hair was playing in Central Park during the summer theater series, my husband and I actually did the thing where we waited outside all day long for tickets, got the tickets, and during intermission, it started to pour. And they made it very clear that the show was going to go on and the show was going to go on, but we would have to sit in the rain for an hour until they started up again. And... We sat for about 30 minutes trying to, you know, gut it out, and then we left. But it was not easy at all.
0: No, it makes it very hard. That's exactly right. So here we can see the sunk cost fallacy at play. If you wouldn't buy the ticket that day, then it doesn't matter that you already bought the ticket because that money was already spent. So you already spent that $500. It doesn't matter if you go to the concert or not. That makes no difference for whether the money on the ticket was wasted The only thing that should matter is, would I buy the ticket today? Would I even take a free ticket today? Because that's telling you whether you're going to enjoy the concert to go see the Eagles or to go watch hair. Enjoy the concert enough for that new time, the time that you're spending over that next two hours, to be worth it. But it's really hard, right? It's like, it's a real cognitive illusion. It's really hard not to say, but it matters that I bought the ticket,
1: Well, and we talk about this. So I teach an investing class with Karen Feinerman called Investing Fix that a number of our listeners are participating in. And when we evaluate investments for our portfolio, the question that we always ask is Would I buy it today? And Karen's attitude, and she's a professional investor, is that if you own it, it's the same thing as buying it today because you've gone home with it. And it's like you make that decision every single day. So I get what you're saying. What I want to know is how'd you learn all this playing poker?
0: (laughs) So poker is the best place to end up in a sunk cost fallacy situation. So in poker, you're investing money in a hand. So it's just like any other investment. You're basically, you can think about your hands as stocks. And the question is, am I going to invest in this stock? So as you go along, it's like you put your EMT in and then maybe you make your first bet. Maybe you make your second bet. And eventually you could ha- actually have quite a bit of money that's already in the pot. And what you'll hear people say all the time, and certainly, I mean, again, it's still hard for me to say it doesn't matter that I paid the $500. I'm not going to go to the concert, right? Like these are things that even when you know about them, it's still hard to not, you know, succumb to them is... You see people continuing to play hands that they ought not to play because, and they'll say it out loud, they'll say things like, I had too much money in the pot already, or I had to protect the chips that I had already put in the pot. But of course, it's the same as the situation that you just talked about. It's like, okay, but if I parachuted you into this situation and I gave you the hand, would you want to play it? Right? And if the answer is no, like, going forward, I'm not getting a positive return on the next dollar that I put in. You ought not to do that. But you hear this all the time. And I think there's a variety of reasons. I think one of them is the sunk cost fallacy, which I think is really, really hard for people. You know, just this idea of like, but then the money that I've already put in the pot, I'll have wasted. And then I think on top of it, there's some issues of over-optimism which is I think that people just tend to overestimate the chances that they're going to actually win the hand. So I think that's another issue. And I think that there's also kind of this problem of like, it's like ambiguity aversion or the pain of what I would call a counterfactual problem, which is maybe if I had stayed in, I would have won. Mm. So I can think about that particular problem. So, so and in poker, it's particularly bad because if I fold, you might continue to play the hand. So I might actually get to see the rest of the cards that come out and then see that had I stayed, I would have actually won the pot. Now, obviously, you know from investing that it's not, could I have won the pot? It's, am I going to win this pot enough of the time in the long run for it to make this worth my while? So yeah, I mean, I might only have a, 5% 5% chance of winning the hand, yeah, 5% of the time I'm going to observe the pain of seeing that I would have actually won. But that doesn't mean that it was a good investment. But I think that that makes it also really hard when you know that it may be revealed to you that if you had continued, you could have actually turned it around. Well, and the same I think is
1: true of a career move, right? If you leave a company and after you left, your best friend, colleague gets the promotion that you didn't know was coming down the pike. That could have come to you if you had stayed. And that's the kind of thing I would beat myself up over every day.
0: Right. And that's a problem called resulting, which is, look, just because an outcome was good doesn't mean that it was a good decision and just because an outcome was bad doesn't mean that it's a bad decision. Hopefully what's happening when you're deciding whether to stay or leave is you're looking at a variety of things that you value. Some of them might be like the probability of a promotion or how much money you're making, but also how happy are you in your work, how fulfilled are you in your work, do the hours work for you? Uh, So we're sort of taking all of that into account. Sometimes on their own, where we say on their own it's not worth it. Sometimes in comparison to other opportunities that we might have. And at some point, you determine that the new opportunity has a higher expected value. Again, I'm not talking about just money, right? It's anything that you value, that you're going to be happier in the new position than the one you're in. But like everything that we start, I mean, this is where we started the conversation, right? Is when you start things, you don't know everything that there is to know. And, you know, there's going to be luck involved. So yeah, sure. When you switch... It could be that the new thing doesn't work out as well as you would hope. It could be the old thing. You see your friend get the promotion and then you kind of think that it was a mistake to make the switch in the first place, but that on its own doesn't make it a mistake. That means just means that things are probabilistic.
1: So I want to dig into how do we know when to quit and how do we know when to stay. In other words, how to distinguish between a situation where it's good, Versus one will regret knowing that we're not going to have all the information that we need to make that decision. But before we do that, let me just remind everyone that when it comes to investing, confidence is key. Confidence in your ability, your knowledge, and your strategy. If you're ready to do more with your investments, visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You'll get to review your current situation with an expert and get tailored investment strategies to help build and grow and protect and preserve your wealth. You can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. Do it for your future right now and speak with an advisor today. I'm speaking with Annie Duke, former professional poker player, author of Quit, the Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. So, I guess that subtitle, knowing when to walk away, is really my question. How do you evaluate the situation?
0: Yeah, so I think that this is really kind of the key question. We think about whether to stick to it, like grit, right? And whether to walk away as opposing forces, where grit is heroic and quitting is cowardly. But in reality, they're the exact same decision. Right. If you own a stock at any moment, you should decide, would I buy it or sell it? And so you can see how that's the same decision. You have some sort of status quo, which is I own the stock and you're making a decision about should I continue to hold it? That would be grit, Or should I sell it? And so they're actually the same decision. And I think we need to recognize that. So. People ask me a lot. I think what's interesting is you added in, when should you stick to it or when should you quit? I think that what most people say is, how do you know when to quit? Because I think everybody views the default as sticking to it. But we want to get out of that idea of the default is to stick to it. And we want to think about that as how do we actually become calibrated between the two choices? Because otherwise, I think we do just default to stick to it. And that's what we don't want to do.
1: So is there a tool that you use to sort of calibrate when it's right? I was very interested that you write in the book that quitting on time usually feels like you're quitting too early.
0: Quitting on time so much feels like you're quitting too early that actually we generally don't make the choice to quit until it's no longer a decision. I mean, I can give you a a very stark example of that. We, We know all sorts of stories about people climbing Everest where they're continuing up and despite the weather getting very bad. They don't actually turn around until it's quite dire. And, you know, obviously you should be turning around long before your life is in that much danger. You know, I think that when you talk about jobs that people have, like you even said for yourself, I understand that you quit after three months, but you quit only when you couldn't take it another day. That's honestly too late, Gene. right? Like they're clear signals before you literally can't take it another day. For you to quit. But the thing is that when it gets to the point where you can't take it another day, we have the peace of mind to know that we're not quitting just because we're weak or don't have what it takes or lack character because it has become so unbearable. So the right time to quit is going to be long before that point, like long before it's just, I literally can't, I cannot do this one other day or the blizzard is upon me. So I must turn around or in the case of like owning a stock or a poker hand, right? Like, okay, it went to zero. I guess I just have to get rid of it, right? Like we're trying to actually calibrate better. Now that particular problem is actually incredibly difficult. And I think it's the reason why we default to grit because this issue of when is the right time to do it is actually very hard because it's a problem of expected value. And as you know, expected value isn't something that you can see. It's not something that I can you know, hold in my hand. It's what is the future upside or downside over time of this particular decision that I'm making. So that's actually a hard problem. So what we kind of have to do is hack it. So we have to create some hacks for it. And the first hack is to recognize that we're going to be really bad at the decision in the moment. So who was your podcast host who was saying that you have to
1: decide? Karen Feinerman was saying that she has to know about going home. If she goes home with the stock, it's like she bought it that day.
0: Great. So I'm going to just pierce a hole a little bit in what Karen said, which is the sentiment is 100% correct. If you wouldn't buy it today, you shouldn't hold it. That's 100% correct. Where people take that to, and I've heard this from a lot of investors, is that they'll come in, say, every Monday morning, and they'll say, I look at my portfolio, and I say, would I buy this today? And that solves the sunk cost problem, right? Because I'm actually being intentional and thinking, is this something that I would buy today? The problem is that all the research shows that that particular hack does not work. In other words, to just sort of like try to Jedi mind trick yourself into, well, let me imagine that I didn't own this. Would I buy it today? And I think that you can probably sense that because if in the concert situation you would say, well, would I buy a ticket to the Eagles today? you're gonna give a different answer if you actually already own the $500 ticket. Like as much as you're trying to look at it differently, it's really easy to be like, of course, the Eagles are my favorite band and it, I'd go see them in any weather. Even though if I could actually get you fresh to the decision, I would see that you had different behavior. And it's not that there isn't good sentiment in that idea because it is it, it, the sentiment is exactly correct. And it's not that if it worked, it wouldn't be a good strategy because you would think that that would be the right way to approach it. It just doesn't work. So what we have to do is recognize that in the moment, once we actually are in it, when we're in something, I'm already in the job, right? I already own the stock. I'm already 300 feet from the summit, that that's when we're going to be at our decision making worst. So the first way to solve for that is to make it so that you're making the decision about when to walk away when you're not in it, which means in advance.
1: So I know investors who say, when it falls by 10%, I'm out. They have rules.
0: Yeah. So that would be an an example of a simple kill criteria. So we're talking about kill criteria here. And what we're doing is when when we start something, when we enter into something, we say, you essentially set sort of a state of the world and then a deadline. Okay. So in this particular case, the deadline is when it goes down 10%, and that would also be the state of the world. So it would be combined, and that would be just a loss limit. Right. So we we have a stop loss. In mountain climbing, they actually have what are called turnaround times. No matter where I am on the mountain, that's the state, at 1 p.m. I have to turn around. So that would be the deadline or the date. Now, so those are the simplest versions of kill criteria, things like stop losses. I use them in poker. And it's a recognition that once I'm in the losses, right? Once I have those losses in my mental account, that I'm not gonna want to close those accounts in the losses. Right? That's the insight of both Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler, another Nobel laureate in economic sciences. So I like to go with what Nobel laureates say. And that if I know that it's going to be easier for me to justify it once I have the loss on board, I'm going to decide in advance that once I've lost a certain amount of money, I'll walk away. Now, kill criteria can get more sophisticated than that. So if we take more of, say, an expert investor, when an investor is getting into a position, they're going to have a thesis, And that thesis is going to say things about, for example, the fundamentals. And so what they can do is on entry, they can not just rely on, well, my thesis is implying these things about the world. So when those things happen, I'll obviously sell because that's not actually what occurs, right? Nobody says they're ever going to continue up a mountain in a blizzard, but we know lots of people do. So they need to not trust that. And instead, what they need to do is write down and say, here's my thesis. This is what it implies about the fundamentals, let's say if the fundamentals move in a particular way, that I will sell. So I'll give you an example of how you might apply that type of kill criteria. So I know a lot of people who a couple of years ago were in crypto and they had a thesis. So these were people who I thought were very smart and their thesis was that sort of twofold, what I could glean from it was, it will be uncorrelated with market chaos and it will be a hedge against inflation. So I'm sure you heard that as well, Jean. I heard it. We definitely talked
1: about it on the podcast and neither of those things turned out to be true.
0: Right, neither of those things turned out to be true. Now, at the time, I didn't feel that I knew enough about crypto to say whether it was true or not. So I actually didn't get in crypto because I don't like to be in things that I don't, I don't feel like I understand. And I didn't want to put in the effort (laughs) to tell you the truth, to really understand it. But the really smart people were telling me that that was true. And I don't think that they were necessarily wrong or right. I think that they had good reasons to to think that Bitcoin might behave that way. But that was their thesis. So now what we could do is we could take that thesis and we could say, all right, let's set some kill criteria now. And one of them might be if inflation goes up by this amount, you know, and crypto goes down in a strong enough correlation so you could decide what that correlation would look like and how durable it would need to be, then I must sell because it's not actually a hedge against inflation, which is the reason why I got it. Also, when you see sort of general market chaos, you could make kill criteria around uh-huh. that. If, the, if Bitcoin is going down with the market, right, over a certain period of time, then I'm going to sell. So that's the way that you would actually decide in advance. And then when you see this, you would actually sell. Now, what we know happened to a lot of people is that that was their thesis going in, and then they still didn't sell. So the question is, why did they still not sell? Well, because they couldn't get their money back if they sold. And what ends up happening is that they don't want to bear the shore loss, And so they'll start, what I heard some people pivot to was, well, I'm in it philosophically. Yes, I heard a lot of that. And it's justification. So take this
1: kill criteria and apply it in a job setting. I'm in a job, right? I'm I'm working someplace, Thinking about quitting, I mean, we've got a lot of... Since the Great Resignation, right, people are still quitting at higher rates since before the pandemic. There is some research that now suggests that people are regretting those decisions. We've got a, a survey from Paychecks that says eight out of 10 workers who left their jobs during the Great Resignation wish they'd stayed. What's a smart way to hack that?
0: Yeah, so essentially... What you want to do in these types of situations is not make the decision in the moment. Okay, so we can apply the same idea that we did to Bitcoin to a job. So notice what I said about Bitcoin is I want you to not make the decision in the moment because I don't think you're going to make a particularly good one. What I want you to do is actually be more considered and try to think in advance. So if you're in a job, that moment that you say, hmm, I feel like I might be unhappy. Don't go quit that day. I'm not recommending that you then go turn in your resignation that day. Instead say, again, when we're thinking about states and dates, okay, I'm not happy in this job. How long am I okay with this? So let's say you say, you know what? I'm okay with the situation, sort of the status quo, the way that this feels right now to me. I'm okay with this for three months or I'm okay with this for six months. So you set whatever that deadline is. So now you've got a deadline. Let's say it's three months. Okay, I'm okay with this for three months. You now say, all right, imagine it's three months from now and you're happy in your job. What does that look like? Okay, so you can write down all those things, right? Like I'm feeling fulfilled. I have a good relationship with my superior. This toxic colleague is no longer being toxic or maybe they're out of the picture, whatever, right? I've gotten a promotion. Just figure out what those things are, where you feel like this would be what would good would look like for you. And then say, imagine it's three months from now and I feel miserable and I don't want to be here. What does that look like? And then you figure those things out, right? So now that gives you your kill criteria. It gives you your kill criteria. It also gives you your sticking criteria, right? If things are looking good, if I'm meeting those benchmarks of like what good looks like, then I ought to stay also. Now, here's the key. Having set that, you don't just allow the world to happen. Instead, you look at those things and you say, well, what can I do? to create the good version of the world. So that might be sitting down and having a frank conversation with someone you who's your direct report, right? Like how do I think about really expressing my concerns about somebody who I feel has toxic behavior in the workplace or how do I talk to somebody about, you know, I really would like to get a promotion, can you help me understand what the things are that I need to do that would help me to actually achieve that. So you figure that stuff out and then you do that stuff. And then in three months, you look at your list and you say, where am I? Where am I sitting in comparison to that list? Now, I will say that these things are always better done with what I would call a quitting coach, which is someone from the outside could be a mentor, for example. In the case of relationships, sometimes I think therapists are incredibly helpful, where they are going to understand for you what's realistic, right? So As an example, if someone is in an entry-level position and they're really mad because they haven't gotten a promotion in the first three months, it's good for them to talk to somebody who has more experience and say, you know, is that a reasonable thing for me to be feeling? Should that be on my list of what I need in the next three months? And someone can say, no, hey, you're 21. You just started this job. Really? You think you're supposed to have gotten a promotion? That's kind of irrational or unrealistic. So It's really good to sit down with a mentor and say, how long should I be okay with this situation, right? What is your opinion of what is reasonable to expect to show me that things are getting better? What do you think bad looks like? And what do you think the things are that I could do that would help me to make things better? And notice that talking to somebody else does something similar to the reason why you're setting kill criteria in the first place, which is they're not in the decision with you. So they're able to see your situation more clearly, generally, than you can see it for yourself. And they can help you to actually navigate these decisions about when to stick and when to quit. Such
1: smart advice all around. Annie, I love this whole conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where can we learn more about you?
0: Well, I have a website, annieduke.com. So you can certainly go there and learn about me there. The main place that I've been sort of interacting with people recently has been on Substack. So I have a Substack. It's called Thinking in Bets, which is from the title of the first general audience book that I wrote. We've got a really nice community over there. I interact with people in terms of commenting. I do open threads. I do posts on decision making. A few times a year, I do an AMA where people can get on a Zoom and ask me anything And I've really been enjoying the community over there. So I would say that's a great place to get in touch with me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on the usual places. But I've been most active, I would say, on Substack recently. Substack it is. Thank you so much for doing this today. Well, thank you very much for having me.
1: Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. Catherine Tuggle is joining me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. She was amazing, huh? She was incredible. And look at me pulling out my econ knowledge.
2: I was very impressed, actually. <laughs> I was impressed with myself. For somebody who doesn't like math, I think you really nailed it, Gene. I actually love math. Always
1: love math. <laughs> but I, I got to... No, I do. I really like math. But I, I got to see in my Intro to Economics course. So I'm always impressed with myself when I remember the tenets of that. But I just love how it applies to our whole life, what she's talking about. Because when we... We only have so much time. We only have so much money. And when we say yes to something, it means we're saying no to something else. And so we need to be just as good at deciding what not to do or stopping what we're already doing as we do entering into new decisions.
2: Yeah. I feel like around the new year, there's always a lot of talk from, particularly on social media, from people about getting rid of what's no longer serving you in life. Or taking a hard look at the things that are not edifying you and bringing you joy. But I think it's something that has to be done on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Yep. Absolutely. So what do we have? Our first note today comes to us from Stacy. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I know your book, How to Money, is intended for high school girls, but I'm a 40-year-old starting over, and I wanted to write and tell you that I found this book to be extremely helpful. It was just what I needed to create a roadmap for my next steps. I read it in 24 hours and took copious notes. My plan is to pass on the book and hopefully keep it moving to more women who are looking to start over or start their financial lives off right. Thanks again for an incredible and empowering read.
1: Oh, thank you, Stacy. We wrote the book, Catherine and I, intending it for high school and college students. But we've heard this from a number of people, men as well as women, that it's helpful advice for anyone who really needs to get going. The other thing, Stacy and I don't know if you've looked at this, but we are also finding in our finance fix classes that we're getting a lot of women who are starting over whether it's a divorce whether it's a death whether it's just a shift in perspective people who are looking for a change at a number of different ages are finding their way to us and finding the the coaching in particular and the group work helpful in really getting their finances off on the best possible footing. So, we're running those classes every month now and if you haven't taken a look, you may want to at, at Finance with two x's.com and if you've got any questions, just reach out to me. Happy to answer them always.
2: Love that. Yeah, starting over is just as important, if not more important than starting things out right. So, it's such a great step that you take.
1: Yeah, and I can relate. I mean, I was 40 when I started over. That was the year that I got divorced and my dad died and I got fired and threw caution to the wind. So not really, but really picked up the pieces and started over.
2: Yeah, definitely. Our next question comes to us from Jen. She writes, Hi, Jean. I have a question regarding an elderly person that I'm helping with her finances. She's only 75 but is not in the best of health. She has cash, a house with a mortgage, and she's moved into assisted living. Her pension and social security, along with her cash, put her above the Medicaid eligibility level, so we're in the spend down phase, and then I have to set up a Miller's trust for her so eventually she can qualify for Medicaid. That's the background. Here's my question. She has about two years worth of cash to cover her costs, and then once she decides to sell her house, she will have another one to 1.25 years of cash to cover fees. With the cash she has now, the two years worth of expenses, I'm struggling with the right thing to do would be. I did upgrade her bank accounts to high-yield savings, and now I'm thinking I should keep one year of money in the high-yield account, and then with the other year's worth of expenses, I'm thinking a CD ladder, three, six, nine, and 12 months, but I wasn't sure if bonds or T-bills would be better. I'd love your thoughts on her best options. Thank you.
1: So before I dig into the question, Jen, first of all, she's really lucky to have you in her life and dealing with her affairs in this way because it's really, really complicated. A Miller Trust For anybody who is wondering, is basically as Jen defined it in her letter, it just allows individuals to receive Medicaid benefits if their incomes are above the Medicaid eligibility limits. Basically, it involves establishing an irrevocable trust where you deposit the person's income and assets that are used to pay for their care. And then when the person dies, any funds that remain reimburse the Medicaid program for the cost of care that the person received. You need an estate planning attorney for that. I assume that you got one or that you have one, which is good. In terms of your cash for expenses, What we're talking about here is really the difference in interest rates of about a percentage point. When you're comparing what you can get on a treasury bill, a six-month or a one-year T-bill, versus what you can get in a high-yield savings account right now, versus what you can get in a CD ladder, the interest discrepancy is about a percentage point. You're going to get 4.5% on a high-yield savings account. You could do a little bit better than that, maybe 5%, 5% and a little bit on a treasury bill, maybe a little bit on a CD in that range. I wouldn't stress about it, actually. I would not stress about those percentage points. I would actually probably just keep the whole thing in high-yield savings. Look for a good high-yield savings account in case there is some health issue that requires you to draw down more of the money. You really don't want it tied up in a place where you would have to pay a penalty or you couldn't claw it back. And You have the comfort of knowing that if the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates as they're indicated that they are likely to do, that high-yield savings account is going to increase rates right along with it. That's not going to happen in the CDs or in the treasuries. You're going to have to roll into the next iteration of that investment. So I would just keep it simple, keep it in high-yield savings We've got a list of high-yield savings accounts that we can link to in the show notes so that you can find one that is good and works for you. And again, I just want to say she is really, really lucky to have you. Last thing, and this is only something that I am saying now because I am working on a story for AARP for my upcoming column. If you have her power of attorney, make sure that you go through the steps of making it accepted with any financial institutions that you are dealing with on her behalf, sometimes there are additional forms that you need to fill out. But thanks so much for a really good question.
2: Thank you, Jean, for great advice.
1: Absolutely, Catherine. And because I took so much time with our interview with Annie Duke, I am actually going to skip our Thrive segment today. We'll run it on a subsequent show and just say thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Annie Duke for showing us the power of quitting and helping us make better decisions. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk
2: soon.